Our conference concerns the novel and the moral imagination. Willa Cather's 1927 masterpiece, Death Comes for the Archbishop, is regularly called a novel, but critics greeted its first publication with great perplexity as to its genre. Borrowing expectations from the world of drama, novelists and their readers then generally considered linear sequence and aesthetic unity as givens for the novel. Death Comes for the Archbishop is marked instead, as Guy Reynolds observes, by a discontinuous storyline, discrete tableau, and anecdotes, interpolated legends, historical asides, and a lack of dynamic plot or taut structure. Set in 19th century New Mexico, shortly after the acquisition of that territory by the United States, but extending into Mexico, Arizona, and Denver, it chronicles the missionary journeys of two French priests, Father Jean Latour and Father Joseph Valvant, from their young manhood until their funerals. The main characters periodically disappear from sight, going their separate ways or playing the parts of listeners as other characters and their legendary stories one by one come to the fore, forming a colorful, episodic array. Cather's novel is really a sort of anti-novel and consciously intended as such. Cather seems to have done the impossible in at least two scores, topical and formal. Edwin Muir finds only a tincture of religion, religious feeling left in modern chronicles fiction, but Cather wrote a religious and audaciously Catholic novel in a secular progressive age. As Reynolds observes, when Christianity was written about, it was the object of satire, not celebration. Sinclair Lewis's biting portrayal of a fraudulent evangelist, Elmer Gantry, 1927, was a bestseller in the same year Cather's own Christian novel was published. Not Catholic herself, Cather chose to write appreciatively about Catholics, Mexicans, Indians, and immigrants, objects of prejudice marginal to the social mainstream. She reduced the modern novel formally to its ancient religious origins in what Muir calls chronicles, but without the centrality of a royal hero like Odysseus or David to hold the whole together. Death Comes for the Archbishop is not really about the self-effacing Father Latour, and yet precisely because he is not an end in himself, death does not triumph over him at the novel's magnificent close, plot triumphing in the end over character, as E.M. Forster adjudged typical of nearly all novels. Instead, death marks the full, full flourishing of the archbishop's life. Cather accomplishes all of this by turning to medieval models that had themselves already altered the so-called Chronicles tradition, notably Dante's Commedia and Jacobus de Veragine's Golden Legend. In an open letter published in 1927 in the Commonweal, Cather indicates that she had intentionally departed from the novelistic conventions of a unified plot with its climactic demand for a situation to be resolved, that she had chosen instead to test the potential of prose for scene-by-scene -scene depictions 
in an iconographic style, and that she had been inspired by visual and literary artworks of the Middle Ages. My book, she writes, is in a conjuncture of the general and the particular, like most works of imagination. I had all my life wanted to do something in the style of legend, which is absolutely the reverse of dramatic treatment. Since I first saw the Puvis de Chavannes frescoes of the life of St. Genevieve in my student days, I have wished to try to do something a little like that in prose. In the golden legend, the martyrdoms of the saints are no more dwelt upon than are the trivial incidents of their lives. It is as though all human experiences measured against one supreme spiritual experience were all of about the same importance. The essence of such writing is not to hold the note, not to use an incident for all there is in it, but to touch and pass on. I felt that such writing would be a kind of discipline in these days when the situation is made to count for so much in writing, when the general tendency is to force things up. In this kind of writing, the mood is the thing. All the little figures and stories are mere improvisations that come out of it. Cather probably knew De Veragini's famous 13th century collection of saints' lives and liturgical expositions, the so-called Golden Legend, through William Morris's illustrated 1892 edition. In Saints and Postmodernism, Revisioning Moral Philosophy, Edith Visegrad has argued for the value and utility of saints' lives in building moral lives in bridging the gap between moral theory on the one hand and its concrete application in people's lives on the other. She points to three features of the hagiographic story, including the hagiographic novel, that distinguish it from other types of narratives. First, its temporal character or event structure. Second, its grammatical mood. And third, the social formations it exhibits. And what follows, I use Visengrad's threefold list conveniently to structure my discussion of Cather's death comes for the Archbishop. In her Commonwealth letter, Cather points to the woodcuts of Hans Holbein the Younger's Dance of Death as the source for her book's title. I argue that an eschatological horizon announced in the title as the coming of death governs the novel's distinctive features of temporality moral imperative, and brotherhood from the book's, book's beginning to its end. So much so that the book's end marks a new beginning and welcomes a rereading. The archbishop's one supreme spiritual experience of dying in the faith, literally in Santa Fe, as a result of having lived in that same faith, confirms it as a constant means, goal, and form for his life. Temporality in the face of death. As readers of the Golden Legend frequently observe, the hagiographies it includes are disproportionately the stories of early Christian martyrs for the faith. The actions and sufferings of the saints are often briefly related as if to underscore the shortness of each one's earthly life and the high intensity of saintly existence. 
Baptized into Christ and already dead to sin, the saints live fearlessly as if a second death by axe, fire, or the sword has no power over them. Their lives are lived forward into time and eternity because they are already living after death while still in the flesh. The passing of time, writes Visegrad, is experienced as an extreme urgency to begin the task of saintly life over and over again. The saintly future is the time that's left in which to alleviate suffering, to work the works of mercy before it is too late. Compared to liturgical time with its hours and seasons and saints' feasts, calendric time has a minimal imprint upon the narratives of Jacobus de Voragine and Cather alike. Reynolds notes, quote, a flattened tone is typical of the novel's recording of history, an almost paradoxically objective style that gives terse details of time, place, and event. The novel's prologue begins in Rome with the words, one summer evening in the year 1848. Chapter one, set somewhere in central New Mexico, begins similarly, one afternoon in the autumn of 1851. Chapter three commences, it was the late afternoon of Christmas Day. The only date given with exactitude in the novel recalls the reported historical apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe on Saturday, December 9th, in the year 1531. Years, months, and decades pass in Nat Cather's narrative, chapter by chapter, without any dating at all. We never learn the year and date of Father Vallant's death in Denver and Father Latour's passing in 1888 or early 1889 is only directly and indirectly indicated without a specific date. Unlike Willard Cather's other novels, observes Mary Ann and David Stout, time is only incidental for the archbishop. Cather stays close to her chief historical source for biographical information about her historical models for the two priest characters, namely Father John Baptiste Lamy, the first bishop of New Mexico, and Father Joseph Projectus Machebouf, who became the first bishop of Denver and Utah. The banner events of standard history books, the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, the Taos Revolt of 1847, the Gadsden Purchase of 1854, the Gold Rush to Pikes Peak in 1859, the forest removal of the Navajos from their lands in 1864, all this remains in the hinterland of the novel's action providing no more than a quotidian background for Cather's story of priests who see themselves as men on the fringes of history. For those around them, the priests are, as it were, points of eternity in time. Observing Father Latour's good manners with the Indians, his way of meeting people, the Indian guy Jacinto observes that the, priest, the bishop's face underwent no change as he, under, as he entered into conversation with others. He was not, in short, two-faced. The Romanesque cathedral that the archbishop builds in Santa Fe out of golden rock is a symbol of his own unchanging faithfulness to God and to the people of his diocese, 
a tribute to an abiding divine and human presence. Both Father Latour and Father Vallant live relatively long lives, but all their days are lived out sub specie eternitatis, with a view to the last things, an eternal law, infidelity to their ordination. Cather's art finds an objective correlative in the firm spiritual attitude of the, in this firm spiritual attitude of theirs and the rocky, seemingly timeless landscape of the vast territory across which they travel, riding horses or mules. From generation to generation, the Acoma Indians have lived on the mesas, finding security and protection from their enemies on the high rock, a fact that inspires Father Latour with a new understanding of the scriptures, which name God, Christ, and Peter as rock. The waterless rocks of the region protect the Acomas, but also endanger travelers. In the reader's first glimpse of Father Latour, he is alone without water, lost in a desert landscape of conical red hills. There he pauses to pray, kneeling at the foot of a cruciform tree. His own thirst reminds him of Christ's thirst for souls and that of the first missionaries to the region centuries ago. Quote, they thirsted in the deserts, starved among the rocks, climbed up and down its terrible canyons on stone-bruised feet, broke long fasts by unclean and repugnant food. Surely these endured hunger, thirst, cold, nakedness, of a kind beyond any conception St. Paul and his brethren could have had, unquote. Time and eternity, death and life intermingle throughout the novel. Death comes for the archbishop, ends with the tolling of the cathedral bell just after dark to announce the death of the beloved archbishop in a call to prayer. It shares magnificently with all the great novels what Frank Caramode calls a sense of an ending, but also what René Girard names a conclusion, evoking the pattern of Christ's death and rising. The novel comes slowly to its end, with the whole of Book Nine devoted to the Archbishop's remembrance of his life, his leave-taking from the past, his gradual withdrawal from calendar and time, his coming to rest in the middle of his own consciousness, his enjoyment to the full of that period of reflection which is the happiest conclusion to a life of action. At the first sign of his rapidly declining health, Father Latour comforts his young companion Quote, I will not die of a cold, my son. I shall die of having lived. Unquote. His time, when it, comes, when it comes, participates in that biblical fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, that is the hour of the Lord's own incarnation, of his death, of his rising. The ringing of the bell at the novel's end recalls the ringing of a bell near its start, to sound the Angelus. Returned to Santa Fe after his trip to New Mexico, the young Bishop Latour awakes the unexpected ringing of this bell, which Father Vallant has discovered in the basement of old San Miguel and managed to get mounted on a scaffolding in the churchyard. Father Vallant describes it to the astonished Bishop as weighing 800 pounds, inscribed in Spanish with a dedication to St. Joseph, 
and bearing the date 1356. Cather thus skillfully waves, weaves into her story the historic San Jose Bell, treasured still today in Santa Fe. The bell occasions a significant conversation between the two priests on the subject of historical origins. The beautiful sound of the bell makes it a symbol for Latour of an organic process of acculturation, traceable back to the Moors who first brought the Spaniards the art of silvermaking, an art the Spaniards then taught the Mexicans, and the Mexicans the Navajos. The praying of the Angelus may itself be an adaptation of a Muslim custom, he says. One cannot be sure of the depth of Cather's knowledge of the golden legend, which she names as an influence upon her own work. But its medieval author delights in precisely this sort of organic history. For example, in explaining the dates of and customs for a particular feast in the church's liturgy. An encyclopedist, Jacobus de Veragine, seeks to include in his legenda, albeit sometimes critically, different regional traditions and thus to demonstrate the strength of the Catholic faith in assimilating to itself popular practices, including those from a pagan past. Cather's Bishop Latour is similarly respectful of indigenous practices. He approves, for example, the practice of the old white-haired priest, Padre Jesus de Vaca, who raises parrots in order to be able to supply their feathers to the Indians of Isleta for their ceremonial dances. Father Latour celebrates Holy Mass among the Laguna Indians at Isleta in a small white church painted above and about the altar with gods of wind and fire and rain and thunder, sun and moon linked together in a geometrical design of crimson and blue and dark green. In the new world, as in the old, he muses, there is something older than history, like those wellheads in his own country where the Roman settlers had set up the image of a river goddess and later the Christian priests had planted a cross. In this context, too, saintly existence is lived forward. A recurrent metaphor in Death Comes for the Archbishop is that of the buried seed of human life and of the gospel, a seed that has miraculously taken root in the soil and yields flowers of astonishing beauty. Early in his apostolate, Latour providentially discovers a place named Hidden Water, the natural beauty of which approximates in his experience a religious vision. Quote, running water, clover fields, cottonwoods, acacias, little adobe houses with brilliant gardens, a boy driving a flock of white goats toward the stream. This settlement was his bishopric in miniature, Latour reflects, hundreds of square miles of thirsty desert, then a spring, a village, old men trying to remember their catechism to teach their grandchildren, the faith planted by the Spanish friars and watered with their blood was not dead. It awaited only the toil of the husbandmen. Enacting that metaphor of seed planting, watering, and cultivating, Cather's father Latour devotes himself to his people. He also literally tends a garden for his recreation both in Santa Fe and later in his retirement at the so-called Bishop's Lodge. 
Cather uses the word recreation in more than one sense, quoting the proverb of Pascal, man was lost and saved in a garden. The archbishop urges the young French missionaries who join him in New Mexico, quote, wherever there's a French priest, there should be a garden of fruit trees and vegetables and flowers, unquote. Father Vallant also uses seed imagery, describing the people as being like seeds, full of germination, but with no moisture, needing a mere contact with an evangelist to become a living part of the church. Over the metaphor of the planted seed, Father Vallant prefers a different, equally biblical metaphor, that of a treasure buried in a field. While he is on mission in Arizona, a Pima Indian leads him down into a cave where the sacred objects used for mass have been hidden since an Apache attack long ago and guarded for generations, awaiting the return of a priest. The faith in that wild frontier is like a buried treasure, the priest explains. They guard it, but they do not know how to use it to their soul's salvation, unquote. A spiritual miner, Father Vallant, commits himself zealously to this work. Eventually, it leads him literally to Pike's Peak in Denver, where he labors as a pastor in the camps of the miners, the 89ers, during the gold rush. Both metaphors, the planted seed and the buried treasure, entail concepts of the passage of time, of mortality, and of resurrection to new life. Saints' lives, like all stories, have a temporal sequence, albeit with a heightened parataxis. Something happens, then something else. The structures of the then is the order of narration and is plotted in terms of that toward which the sequence tends, Vishigrad explains. In the case of the hagiographic novel, the real action begins and ends not with death, but with the newness of life after death, the coming to fruition of a life by way of the story's time-tied events. Hagiographic grammar and the incorrectness of vice. The cathedral the archbishop builds and the garden he plants and tends inevitably serve, however, to recall and to atone for another church building and another garden in the novel, a disturbing remnant from the sinful past of the clergy in New Mexico. Cather describes the young bishop's great unease, his feeling of depression, in the fortress-like church built atop the mesa at Acoma and, its, and in its nearby decaying garden. At the historical origin of the church and garden, he learns, were two proud Spanish missionaries, Fray Juan Ramirez, circa 1600, and a century later, the legendary Fray Baltazar Montoya, a tyrannical and overbearing man who lived more after the flesh than the spirit, and who, like Fray Ramirez before him, demanded a heavy tribute in labor from the Indians. At his command, they hauled stone, wood, water, fertilizer, and food from the plain to the top of the mesa. From that high, rocky height, the corpulent friar was eventually thrown down by the Indians, executed for manslaughter, his killing of a serving boy at a dinner party to which he had invited other priests. 
man was lost in a garden. Observing that the upshot of a hagiographic narrative may be, and often is, bound up with a moral point, Visegrad goes further, arguing that saints' lives, when written in the indicative mood, are actually understood by readers in the imperative, as compelling the imitation of the saint and the avoidance of vice. The hagiographic material is united and framed by the imperative mood, the, the implicit command to make the moves of the saint after them, to imitate them as they imitate Christ. Radically obedient to God and to their calling, ordered by love of God and neighbor, the saints by their very existence order us. This ordering, moreover, is the moral dimension of the saint's life, the necessary background against which his or her acts are judged to be saintly, just and upright, even when they, and especially when, they disrupt the status quo, discomforting business as usual. Cather's death for the archbishop is anti-novelistic in its refusal to confuse morality with ethics. Antecedent to ethics, morality defines human conduct in its free subordination to the ideal of what is right and fitting. Morality thus reveals itself in patterns of outward behavior, in the virtues that have become second nature to people as a result of repeated free decisions, striving for the good, grace, and mimetic association with good people. Conversely, immorality reveals itself in vices, in the bad habits that deform a character over time and gain outward expression in his or her vicious conduct. Ethics, by contrast, charts an inward course from the surface of the self to a deeper self, which is vexed by the complexities of decision or action or inaction and the effort or release involved in solving or ignoring or evading problems. In the modern novel, writes Martin Price, quote, characters live in society and act upon it, but the novelist is particularly concerned with the confusion, terrorism, and heroism that lies within consciousness. In such characters, the moral world is largely internalized, and the characters themselves are often victims of an all but willed blindness. The blindness that Rene Girard calls meconnaissance, a tragic misrecognition of themselves and others. In Cather's hagiographic novel, the movement is generally not from the surface of the self to a deeper self. Instead, the novel concerns itself for the most part with what is plainly observable from the outside, a person's physical appearances, uh, appearance, his or her characteristic words, actions, habits, a memorable utterance or gesture. Cather describes personal appearance in the same way she describes geography. Earth, wind, and, and sky become animated in the process, even as the living, besold bodies of people come to resemble landscapes, in keeping with the biblical word, you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. Traveling with Usabio, Father Latour recalls, was like traveling with a landscape made human. He accepted chance and weather as the country did, with a sort of grave enjoyment. He talked little as ate little, slept anywhere, preserved a countenance open and warm." Unquote. 
This sort of attentiveness to the outward behavior lends itself to the reader's discovery of the moral life as patterned, customary, and communal in its effects. Apart from the reader's occasional limited access to Father Latour's inner thoughts and feelings, the deeper self of the novel's individual characters remains mysterious, something past anyone's understanding, save that of God. At the same time, however, the inner life, the cast of temperament and moral character, reveals itself in epiphanic moments of self-revelation and insight. Apart from the two French missionaries, no single character is ever a focus of attention for long. They come to the fore and then disappear from view. Beginning in Book 2, Chapter 2, Missionary Journeys, the priests meet a series of characters that resemble vice figures from medieval morality plays. Buck Scales, the inhospitable American host, who plans to kill the two priests traveling on the lonely road to Mora, is the very embodiment of wrath. An ugly, evil-looking fellow, a scale is tall, gaunt, ill-formed, with a snake-like neck terminating in a small, bony head. Picture that. A figure to evoke visceral repulsion and fear. Warned that he is a cutthroat, the priests hastily remove their mules from his stable and continue on their way in darkness and rain. The priests and the townsfolk soon learn that Scales has already murdered four travelers and the three newborn infants of Magdalena, his badly abused young wife. In short order, after a quick trial, Scales is hung for his crimes. Death comes. Don Manuel Chavez is another wrathful character who, in Cather's memorable phrase, not only has a story, but seems to have become his story. Whereas the anger of Scales is indiscriminate, Chavez has a particular enmity for Indians. Left for dead in a pile of corpses at age 16, Chavez's whole life has been shaped by the traumatic experience of the youthful raid into Navajo country that ended in the massacre of his brother and all their companions. The only survivor, Chavez burns with a fierce passion for danger, thirst for revenge, and envies Kit Carson for his reputation as an Indian fighter. A prize winner of, at pistol shot, Chavez has no rival with bow and arrow, and he gladly fights in the Indian Wars. The reader encounters Chavez only once as a guest at a dinner party at the home of Don Antonio and Doña Isabella Olivares. A charming and cultured woman from New Orleans, Isabella is known for her beauty, youthful appearance, fine dresses, and love of music. A French-speaking harpist, a trophy wife, she enjoys the devoted regard of her Mexican husband and takes pleasure in being the talk of the town. Isabella's vice is her vanity, a vice cloaked beneath her charm, but exposed after her husband's death when she refuses to admit her age in court. Vanity has such a hold over her that she is foolishly ready to lose her whole inheritance rather than testify to the fact of being 53. Sloth and gluttony are embodied in the corpulent figure of Trinidad Lucero, 
a nephew of Padre Lucero at Arroyo Hondo. The reader first encounters him dressed in a brown Franciscan robe, lying on the floor fast asleep at midday in the study of Padre Martinez. He was lying on his back with his head pillowed on a book. As he breathed, his bulk rose and fell amazingly. Padre Martinez jokes about Trinidad's laziness, stupidity, and boundless appetite. Cather paints his physical portrait in the emblematic manner of ancient and medieval character sketches. The corners of his mouth were deep folds and plumpness, like the creases in a baby's legs, and the steel rim of his spectacles where it crossed his nose were as embedded in soft flesh. He said not one word during supper, but ate as if he was afraid of never seeing food again. The chief vice figures in Death Comes for the Archbishop, however, are a pair of Mexican priests, Padre Antonio Jose Martinez and Padre Marino Lucero, about whom we read in Book 5 at the very center of the novel, a position equivalent to the last circle of hell in Dante's Inferno. Possessed of great physical force and imperious will, Padre Martinez is characterized by a Lucifer Luciferian pride that gives him a dictatorial control over all the parishes in northern New Mexico and the native priests at San Santa Fe. He exhibits in classic form, however, all three principal lusts, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Indulging the lust of the flesh, he has fathered children and grandchildren in almost every settlement. His lust of the eyes, his curiosity, expresses itself in his poring over theological writings, especially those of St. Augustine, seeking arguments against clerical celibacy and in support of his heterodoxy. Since concupiscence is the most common form of temptation, Martinez tells the archbishop, it's better for a priest to know something about it. The soul cannot be humbled by fast and prayer. It must be broken by mortal sin to experience forgiveness of sin and rise to a state of grace." Unquote. Finally, Padre Martinez's lust for domination, his pride of life, leads him to instigate revolt at Taos, to disobey the archbishop, and to establish his own schismatic church, the so-called Old Holy Catholic Church of Mexico. After Padre Martinez's death and in, in anticipation of his own, Padre Lucero, Martinez's partner in the schism, returns to communion with the church, reserving the last, receiving the last rites at the hands of Father Balland. A miser from his youth, Padre Lucero boasts about his conspicuous vice, since, quote, avarice is the one passion that grows stronger and sweeter in old age, unquote. Although very rich and reputed to be so, he has lived his whole life in the barest poverty. His money stashed beneath his bed and buried in the dirt floor below a large crucifix. In a brilliant reworking of Jesus' parable of the foolish rich man surprised by death and in multiple biblical passages comparing death to a thief in the night, Cather relates that Lucero kills a would-be robber who has broken into his house at night. Traumatized by the event, the old priest's health breaks, and he sets his affair in order on his deathbed, where he receives the sacraments. 
His last days and hours provide a memorable foil for those of Archbishop Latour. They also anchor the novel's indebtedness to Dante, for the old priest's dying words are reputed to convey his vision of a Luciferian Padre Martinez in hell. Eat your tail, Martinez, eat your tail. Brotherhood and social formation. The partnership between Father Martinez and Father Lucero in crime and schism is antithetical in the novel to the virtuous brotherhood between Fathers Latour and Vallant. Recall that the, in the hagiography, according to Visegrad, um, recall that the hagiography is, is remarkable for the social formation it exhibits, a social formation that frequently pits the martyr saint and the community of saints against the empire, challenging its laws and values and troubling the status quo. Cather calls this status quo the old order, the state of clerical corruption and pastoral neglect that the French missionaries are sent to rectify. In Cather's novel, the new social and ecclesiastical order, inclusive of a great diversity of peoples, Mexicans, Americans, Indians of various tribes, immigrants from Spain, Germany, and France, is generated, as it were, out of the smallest possible social unit of two persons, Jean Latour and Joseph Vallant come, as we learn, from the same French province. They studied in the same seminary where they first became friends, complementing each other through their differences in family background, temperament, and styles of devotion. Jean is scholarly, reserved, artistic, principled, tall and handsome in appearance. Joseph is practical, lively, warm in affect, quick to form interpersonal bonds, short and ugly, having a disfiguring wart upon his chin. They begin at different ranks, Jean the young bishop, Joseph his vicar, but at the novel's end, Joseph has become the, the bishop of Denver and Utah, and Jean, archbishop of New Mexico. The spiritual bond between them intensifies over time, even as the geographic distance um, between them grows. Their unity in diversity is, as it were, the seed for a new world. Although some kind of sibling rivalry between the two priests might be expected um, to mar their unity and entangle the plot, mimetic rivalry never arises in to trouble their relationship. This is remarkable and confirms Cather's work as an anti-novel. In his professedly Augustinian reading of the modern novel, Girard has analyzed the, tip the typical novelistic feature of contagiously multiplied and interlocking lovers' triangles as rooted in more basic contests of enemy twins who double each other through an internal mediation of each other's desires. The founding narratives of ancient cities and peoples feature fraternal strife. For example, that between Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Romulus and Ramus. In modernity and in the modern novel, according to Girard, the phenomenon of the enemy twin, the hated and desired double, recurs with greater frequency and intensity. Thanks to the leveling effects of democracy, secularism, and consumerism, 
and it results in idolatrous sacrifices. Cather's novel evokes sacrificial themes, both ancient and contemporary. She relates, for example, stories of Pecos Indian snake worship involving, perhaps, the sacrifice of babies. Cather includes near the novel's end Jean Latour's remembrance of the American Civil War, the scourge of black slavery in the United States, and the near genocide of the Navajos by the American troops who forced them from their lands. The latter two are the two great wrongs the Archbishop lives to see righted with slavery's end and the restoration of the Navajos to their native place. While Cather's novel ends on a progressive note, politically speaking, the ground of hope lies not in the manifest destiny of the nation, but in the pilgrim's progress heavenwards of the two priests and their people. The centrifugal energy of the novel spins out from the moral miracle of the brotherly relationship between Father John and Father Joseph. In their unfolding relationship, sacrifices regularly take the form of self-renunciation for the sake of the other. As Visegrad notes, self-renunciation to the point of effacement is the mark or trace of saintly labor. Father Joseph gives up his beloved mission field in Sandusky, Ohio, to accompany Father Jean to New Mexico. He accepts difficult assignments and obedience from the bishop. He returns to Santa Fe when the bishop summons him, leaving Albuquerque and Tucson, where he's enjoying a fruitful ministry. As time goes on, the bishop is the one who detaches himself from the natural comfort of his friend's nearness, to allow Father Joseph to pursue his missionary dreams in Arizona and Denver. Cather narrates these decisions of detachment with symbolic gestures, the breaking of a spray of tamarisk flowers, the gift of the mule Angelica, the archbishop's wearing of Father Joseph's amethyst ring, the, his attendance at Father Joseph's funeral. Marilyn Callender has suggested that Cather is drawing upon the folktale motif of the two brothers. The golden legend, however, would have provided Cather with ample examples of paired saints honored on the same feast day, among them some biological brothers. I, I list examples on the slide. If I read them, it would be like a litany. <laughs> Whatever their differences, the golden legend presents these saints as non-rivalrous brothers, bound together in their common faith, equal to each other in their martyrdom. The membership within the great community of saints of Fathers John and Joseph and their faithful in their care is suggested, of course, through the little stories of saints and miracles interpolated throughout the novel. The references, for example, to Santiago, the, saint, the patron saint for caballeros and their horses, to Saint Joseph, um, whose venerated picture of grace at a coma secures the fertility of livestock, the Holy Family, who in the form of a Mexican couple and their baby provide food and shelter for Friar Junipero Serra, and importantly to Our Lady of Guadalupe, who appears to Juan Diego. Within this uh, I'm behind. Within this saintly community, which extends into the lives of the faithful whom the missionaries serve, 
The pairing of Father Jean and Joseph in Cather's hagiographic novel is always within a lover's triangle of sorts, the third member of which explains and secures their bond. The transcendent lady to whom they devote themselves is the church herself, Christ's spouse, but more concretely the Virgin Mary, the church's mother and archetype. As in the Golden Legend, famous for its etymologies, the names of Jean and Joseph are significant. Both St. John and St. Joseph, the patron saints of the novel's heroes, had a special relationship to Mary. Joseph was her virginal spouse and protector. Jesus entrusted John, the virginal apostle, to Mary as Mary's son from the cross, and John took her into his home. At a turning point in the novel, Father Joseph and Father Jean have each reached the point of spiritual weariness and dryness, the acedia that results from their very active lives as missionaries. A serious illness interrupts the pace of Father Joseph. In his convalescence during the month of May, the month especially given to Mary, he regains the youthful fervor of, its, of his soul, its pure personal devotion, and all its tender love for Mary. Under her auspices, he renews his zeal for his final missionary journeys to Arizona and then to Colorado. Whereas Father Joseph has his hour of grace in May and in a garden, Father Jean has his in a cold, snowy December night, about three weeks before Christmas. Unable to sleep, he arises and goes to pray in the cold church, where he discovers Sada, an old Mexican woman, a slave to an American Protestant family, weeping and crouched before the locked doors of the sacristy. Taking her inside, he witnesses her ecstasy at being able to pray in a Catholic church before the candlelit altar of the Virgin Mary. Deprived for 19 years of this opportunity due to her enslavement, she has kept her faith, hope, and love alive through the daily praying of the rosary at night. The key Marian image uniting the two priests in their devotion is the motto, Auspice Maria, engraved in Father Joseph's ring and later fingered by Father Jean on his deathbed. Although Cather writes that the words are, were inscribed, the words were inscribed on the amethyst ring, it's more likely that the ring had the classic monogram of an entwined, intertwined A and M representing the words and their meaning under the auspices or protection of Mary. Father Joseph murmurs this motto as he turns his back on Santa Fe to go to his new mission in Colorado. Left behind, Father Jean goes alone to his study and there he awakes to the sense of a Marian presence awaiting him, healing him of the pain of personal loneliness. The title page of Cather's novel, Death Comes for the Archbishop, has the epigram, Auspice Maria, and the explanatory note, Father Valance, signet ring. Thus, the hagiographic features we have been discussing, the ring-like temporality of the novel, where ends are continuous with beginnings, the commanding imperative of saintly imitation, do's and don'ts, and the promise of a new social formation, a communion of saints and brothers, comes together at the end. The recurrent memory throughout the novel of the young priests 
hurried pre-dawn departure together on the train that first carried them away from their home and family back in France, the departure that was a defining moment in their lives as missionary priests and friends, comes to the mind of the Archbishop again on his deathbed. The memory as a wellspring of hope fashions his death not as an end, but as a departure to another land, a following of his saintly friend, Father Joseph, already deceased, but also a going with him in his new presence. Like the two letters entwined in the Marian monogram, the lives of the two priests join in a single dedication, Auspice Maria. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for a, a really wonderful talk, and thank you for addressing one of my absolute favorite books. Um, I got a bunch of questions, but I'm just going to ask one of them. Okay. Um, if we're thinking about this novel as a hagiography or as in some way hagiographic, um, is it one hagiography or is it two? Is it a hagiography of the Torah? Or is it a sort of parallel hagiography? And I'm asking about um, the you, you theorized um, Viant as a, a kind of as the vehicle of a kind of spiritual brotherhood, but it seems like there's also a contrast drawn to that novel between them, and the, the contrast is sort of. Uh, punctuated by, by their last projects. We've got um, Latour's The Cathedral, and beyond we see his funeral, which, well, which for one thing, Catholic changed history to make that seem possible. Right, right. Of course, much of uh, outlives for me. But there's that, that scene in which the dying priest comes all the way back from Europe to yes. appear at his funeral and collapse there. And his relationship with that priest, it's sort of put in parallel with the cathedral. So I'm, I'm curious about this move of potentially writing parallel hagiographies that are doing different things, different that are celebrating different kinds of holiness, or mm -hmm. uh, they're, they seem in contrast in some way. So I guess I'm asking, um, do you see those one or as two hagiographies? And if so, what does that say about the form of the novel? Yeah. Well, you know, if you take the Legenda Aria as a, as a whole, um, you know, I mean, it's goes to the whole liturgical year. There's so many different kinds of saints, right? Um, I, I think that th there, there's definitely a contrast between them, temper you know, it's, you know, it's writ large, right? And that, and that there, the diversity, unity and diversity, you know, depends on them being different. Um, and making a decision to love someone different than yourself. I love the, the early in the novel, there's sort of a, a memory um, a tour has about when he first met Father Joseph, um, when they were still in seminary, right? And, um, you know, they had this conversation, and he, he first thought, well, oh, this, this he's, he really isn't, you know, he, he's ugly, <laughs> you know? Uh, uh, you know, he, he's, you know, from a, a lower class, you know, uh, family, but he's animated, you know? He said, I, I think being his friend would be like having an adventure, right? So he makes this conscious decision, you know, to be a friend of someone very different from himself. 
And, um, and, and everything kind of depends on that, you know, that, that, and of course, we don't kind of get the story from Father Joseph's side, but, um, you know, but he seems to love people of all sorts, right, and to be able to mingle um, at different social ranks and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I would say um, it's, it's a kind of a collection of saints' lives, really. And I, I wouldn't say it's a single life, because Father Latour disappears, so, you know, for um, a good part of it. And I was trying to think of the moments of um, Lauren Cleaver about the, the different kinds of uh, where sometimes we enter into his consciousness very you know clearly, um, but it's, but then you withdraw from it you know so there's a, a way in which you also he's also seen from the from the outside, um, and it's it's like very interesting. I hearing Lauren's paper this morning, I thought I gotta go back there and see if I can kind of n notice it more closely you know when we move in and out. Um, Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is about form as well. It's not being too much in there, but um, you mentioned how Cap was inspired by the literary and the artwork in the Iliad, and as we're discussing the novel as you know, assisting a moral imagination, there's only a few. A slide um, that showed um, really early on. There was a slide that showed um, a page from the Legenda Aria that had different initials. You know, there was like a whole bunch of them on one page. It was from the Life of Saint Anthony, and um, and every one, every little paragraph, there was a different story from the Life of Anthony. You know, kind of very, all of them related in a short way, um, and so I think that was part of it. You know, she saw that there was all these little episodes which then were translated into visual art. So if sometimes there would be cycles where they would tell the whole life of, of a saint, and, but each little scene would be a separate picture. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, you, know, you might have heard of the Little Flowers of St. Francis. I think it has something to do with the way hagiographies come about. So someone tells this story, and someone tells that little story, and um, someone tells another little story, and then whoever is the compiler puts them all together. Right? Um, and so there's, you know, there's not really transitions either from one story to another, um, or at least they're very minimal. But yeah, but, you know, sometimes you'll find an icon where they'll have a central image of the saint, and then all around the borders will be little stories you know, depicted in visual art. Well, I, I have a question yes. related to James's. Um, I think. Uh, Kind of, a kind of imag imaginative empathy is uh, sometimes can be treated as a kind of vague um, source of knowledge about uh, human nature, about principles of human interaction. Uh, but I think that way of knowledge might break down in the cases of, certainly in a hagiographical context, but that's just sort of even outside of literature, this, 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 this kind of imaginative sympathy as a source of knowledge might break down into considering saints or just generally personalities which are kind of so removed from um, the, the subjective 
situation of, of the reader that that the sympathy doesn't quite connect. Sort of, you know, um, maybe to attempt an example, um, sort of, you know, thinking about uh, watching a person uh, do a certain kind of devotional action, the kind of you know, putting yourself in their shoes and 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 the kind of uh, imaginative sympathy might yield something like, well, that would that would uh, put me in a great danger of pride uh, or something like that. But but it kind of doesn't apply to the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if that that limits um, that that shuts off certain kind of conventional venues of communication when it comes to hagiography. It, it doesn't connect to you sympathetically. That's an interesting question. I'm teaching, actually teaching a course on saints and the theology of warfare right now. And so we have read two different kinds of hagiography, to go back to your question. We read the, the long life of St. Gusbach. You've probably never heard of him. But it's, you know, it's, a, it's a fairly long um, hagiography from the 9th century. And he's a, he was a soldier. Um, he realized he was going to die young and bad, you know, and, and he makes a decision to leave. Um, he joins a monastery, then he goes off to, to hermitage. And um, the students loved it, right? They, they, were, they were enthralled with this story of St. Guthlach. And then the next week we read something from the Golden Legend, and they, that was a tougher goal, right? Mm-hmm. These, these short lives um, um, with a lot of, you know, kind of hard to imagine, you know, kind of things. Um, and yet, you know, so I was trying to, to try to think about why that is, you know. Um, but on the other hand, you know, these images, you know, they, I asked the class, well, um, how many of you ever heard of St. Christopher before? You know, a lot of hands go up, you know. They know the story. Some of them are named Christopher. Um, it's, it's, it's a legend, you know, and you can't quite, it's hard to imagine somebody like Christopher, you know, you know showing up to offer services to the best king of the world, <laughs> including Satan, you know, and then um, finding Christ. But, but it's a powerful story, you know, and there's something about the imagery that comes back to haunt you, I think, you know, in, in key moments when you feel like, oh, you know, you know, I'm being like Christopher, or I'm slaying my dragon right now, or, you know, that it, 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 uh, it adds a certain power, by a kind of a metaphoricity, more than an empathy. I think the other one, like the Guzlak story, um, it, it does engage you, you know, empathetically, and you could connect him to stories of reference today, and their PSTD, and, you know, they're fighting with demons, you know, in their dreams, and all of that. It's um, psychologically real.